Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. The U.S. government threw money at the 2008 problem for exactly one year. They threw about a trillion extra dollars at it. But then they went into stalemate mode. They put the sequestration plans in place. And we had very tight fiscal policy from 2010 to 2017. And you could argue that that tightness of fiscal policy perhaps made the economy recover from the Great Recession a little slower. But the Fed, of course, uh, started the quantitative easing and just kept doing it for a while. Uh, so, you know, there, there's there's some different habits there. Hello and welcome back. Uh, our intro music switch up today is in honor of our guest today, Mr. Blue Putnam. We've had him on a couple of different versions of uh, virtual webinars, turned podcasts and whatnot before, but this is our first one-on-one with the Chief Economist and Managing Partner at CME Group. So welcome, Blue. Thank you. Uh, Blue, you're known for explaining the happenings of the world simply with a couple of charts and some slides, giving a lowdown on the economic factors of the times. Uh, that are helping or plaguing or confusing our world. Uh, And as we're well aware between the coronavirus and everything else that's going on in the world today, uh, current state of the US and world economies are in a bit of flux. So there's plenty of talk and plenty to talk about. Um, And to start with, you were just out sailing somewhere? (laughs) Yes, I sail on the Chesapeake Bay, beautiful place to sail. Yeah, but you're here in Chicago. I'm back in Chicago. But usually you're in Chicago, right? Yes. So that's just a treat to get to go out to Chesapeake Bay and hit the just water. A treat. Yes. Where, uh, what what kind of boat? Uh, it's a Islander 36. All right. It's a nice. Very old boat. It's like 40 years old or something, but it's a great sailboat. All right. I used to do a bit of sailing myself. I've never sailed in the Chesapeake actually, though. So I have to put that on my list. Um, and did you fly out there? Yes. What, what was that like? Well, the plane was half empty and it felt safer than the grocery store. Really? What was, uh, which airline? United. United, all right. I feel like Delta's been getting the props for the best at it and American the worst. So maybe United's in the middle? <laughs> I guess so. It, it had the best route. <laughs> um, so Tell us a little bit, we've done in some of our other pods some of your background, but can you give us a little cliff-noted version of how you got to the position you're in at CME? Yeah, I'm chief economist at the CME. I've been here almost 10 years and uh, really enjoy it. It's a great company. 
Um, prior to that, I was involved in a consulting venture uh, aimed at uh, managing macroeconomic portfolios for uh, hedge funds. And before that, I actually ran uh, some investment in, investment asset management businesses. <laughs> and then before that, I was involved with uh, uh, sell-side strategy on uh, bonds. And my first job was the New York Federal Reserve Bank as an economist working on international issues. So that's kind of the background in reverse. Yeah, I like it. What, what year was that year at the Fed? Uh, that's confidential information. <laughs> before, uh, before all their recent shenanigans, I bet that oh, they couldn't have well, imagined. Well before. Yeah, in those days <laughs> that some of the tools they had in their toolbox. The, um, and what's going on at the CME these days? Seems like growing gangbusters as always and more and more people interested in futures markets. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest, particularly in the uh, some of the newer products. The micro uh, equity products are really doing exceedingly well. People are excited about gold and some other products. So uh, yeah, things are going well. What's it been like throughout your time with the CME? Do you feel like you still have to explain derivatives and futures, or has it become a more standard uh, tool in the toolbox? Not to use that twice in two minutes, but has it become a more standard tool for investors these days? I think it's a more standard tool, or it's, it's been a standard tool for me for a long time. I've always been interested in these markets, but uh, you know, there's a wide uh, group of investors that uh, lots of different kind of investors use futures and, and options on futures. Uh, so I don't, I don't have to get in the educational business too much. Right. What do you think the most uh, confuses people the most about futures markets, either from institutional standpoint or down to the retail? Oh, I don't know. I, I, it's, that's a hard question to answer as to what uh, would be the issues. I mean, there are technical specifications for each product, and they are different. Uh, some products like uh, the 10-year treasury note are a physically delivered product, and others are cash delivered. But, uh, you know, 99% of the traders don't hold a, a futures contract to a maturity anyway. So, so those differences don't really play a big role. Right. I just got into the weeds on Twitter. Uh, last week debating the uh, the roll cost or roll yield embedded in futures and was kind of saying, well, people think it's the cost of having to roll to the new more expensive contract when in fact it's actually just the decay of the current contract down to spot prices if it's in contango. Um, you got any thoughts on that? I guess it's technically correct, but we all seem to think like, no, you're rolling to the more expensive contract. That's no, I mean, that only happens in uh, certain markets that uh, have longer dated futures contracts and you can trade further out the maturity curve. That would be true in natural gas, oil, corn, things like that. Yeah. But in like in the uh, equities, the E-mini S&P, uh, you just go from the, the most active contract is the nearby. And then when that matures, you're in the next one. And I have a side question for you. We were running some stats on running uh just holding E-minis to replicate the S&P performance. It seems to trail by about two and a half percent on average. What, why is that? That's kind of the cost of money there embedded in it? Uh, that sounds like the dividend, but I'd have to do some research to tell you. Yeah, uh, the, 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 in theory- only, you uh, With the E-minis, you're only dealing with the price index. If you own the, uh, the ETF or something like that, you're getting the dividends. Got it.
right. Well, enough of my curiosities. Let's um, dig into the U.S. dollar. It's been kind of all over the headlines recently that we're, is this finally the dollar sell-off? Has the Fed gone too far? Um, is inflation coming? All this yada, yada, yada. So let's talk about the dollar. What are you seeing in terms of uh, the dollar index? Well, there are a couple of things going on with the dollar, both uh, both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Uh, one of the main components in the dollar index is the euro. And the euro did some pretty exciting things in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of the big problems with the euro that a lot of economists identify, at least, is that when the euro was created, it was they created a common currency and they created the European Central Bank, but there's no common fiscal policy. Yeah. And in the last couple of weeks, the European Union met. They agreed to issue bonds in euros for the credit risk of the whole European Union. And even more importantly, some of that money will go in grants to the country's hardest hit by the pandemic. So that was a huge first step toward a common fiscal policy or a united fiscal policy. And it really got a lot of traders excited about the future of the euro. Uh, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, um, in the U.S., the U.S. Treasury has been uh, issuing, well, they issued $3.3 trillion worth of debt in the first half of the year. Is that and a lot? That's a lot. <laughs> and the, uh, the Federal Reserve bought half of that, not quite half, 46%. The Federal Reserve bought almost half. And so what uh, economists call that is a, is a fusion of fiscal and monetary policy. And uh, the, the theory it goes under is modern monetary theory, or MMT. Yeah. And a lot of economists worry that you, know, you may be able to do that in a pandemic without any real consequences, and you probably should do it. Well, so it's a good thing. Um, but if you keep doing it after the economy recovers, then there's a, a big inflation risk down the road, you know, three, four, five years, we don't know. Um, so if you're worried about the inflation risk, you buy gold and you sell the dollar. And both of those things have been happening. Uh, so the, the, the dollar story's you know, got, a, got a U.S. component and a Euro component, and it's a complicated story, but really you can boil it down to those two factors. Right, and the, um, the Euro's 21% or something? I can't remember off the top of my head of what it is of the dollar index, but it's the right. largest. It's a, it's, a, it's a very good chunk. Yeah, and what else is in there? Do you know off the top? Sorry to put you on the spot, but it's the yen. Well, yes, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's the regular cast of characters, uh, the yen and the pound. Yeah. Things like that, Swiss franc, uh, all make up part of that that uh, basket. And so, people, the euro side of that is people are betting the problems of, in not too long ago, even last year, right? The thing, the thinking was, we're just getting Germany, Germany's economic input with all the other problems of the euro built into this currency, and now you're kind of saying, okay, we they're trying to figure that piece out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you don't have to go back very far. And, you know, Europe was stagnating. It wasn't growing very fast. Germany was leading, but then Angela Merkel kind of wasn't clear where she would be. And uh, But now they've really, you know, they've done something unusual. They've got a coordinated fiscal policy that they've never had before. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more optimism about Europe uh, doing well in 2021. Even with, and where does their negative yielding debt come into all this? Well, you know, they do have a lot of negative yielding debt. Um, and where it, I don't know who buys it, of course, because I wouldn't be buying a negative But if you wanted to debt. own, right, if you're on this trade and you want to own euros, you're going to put it in, in theory, you're going to put it in some... It's, it's going to be in cash, you know. But uh, the, uh, 
you know, the, you the monetary policies, right? you know, the, the monetary policies of countries are not all that different right now. Uh, the big countries, the big central banks are all doing quantitative easing. They're all buying assets and they all have interest rates pretty close to zero. Maybe they're slightly negative in the case of the euro um, and, you know, pretty close to zero in the U.S., but those differences are small. They're all in the same bag. Well, what is different is the uh, the fiscal policies are shaping up a little differently, and you know that's showing up. And the the expected growth rates are being a little different now, uh, with with Europe kind of maybe getting a little boost, uh, and that's unusual, by the way. So that's helped them out. So those are where the the differences aren't really a monetary policy. So let's rewind back to the MMT here, and which side of the fence are you on there? That that is going to cause problems, or I was just hearing about that new book, Deficits Don't Matter, or Stephanie something, what was that book? Have you heard of it? <laughs> yes, uh, she is the, uh, it's, it's somewhere on the bookcase behind me. Stephanie uh, Kelton, yeah. Yes, Stephanie Kelton. She's the, the uh, chief proponent of modern monetary theory. It got involved in, as a very political issue because it was always attached to what you wanted to spend the money on. Yeah. So you would pick your issue, spend the money on that, and then the Fed would buy the, the debt that financed it. But in reality, it's a, it's a set of ideas that have been around a long time, uh, just brought together in a little bit of a different package. And when you're in a, a, an economic situation like the pandemic, where you're far from equilibrium, we've gone through what I call a network collapse. Um, doing something extraordinary makes a lot of sense. So the, the Fed actions and the fiscal policy actions are, are to be applauded here. What worries people is what happens three, four, five years down the road. The economy is growing again. And, you know, there are some people out there that don't trust politicians to stop spending. And yeah. there are some other people that don't trust the central banks to stop buying the debt. And so it's the cynics, if you will, that are worried about it, uh, the inflation down the road. But uh, we'll see when we get there, you know, as we'll but, have plenty of time uh, once the economy is growing again to, to see if policy can dial back or not. And, you know, there's a pretty good chance the Fed will dial back. Uh, they understand these risks. But so it's not the concept of how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay it back? It's more the concept of there's going to be too much money chasing too few assets and cause inflation. Yeah, it's the uh, when when the federal government spends money they don't have. What really matters for the economy is the actual new spending that's occurring. Yeah, because that'll what'll get the demand for goods and services above the supply and create the inflation. The fact that it's debt financed uh, is an issue, but it's not the inflation issue so much. The, the debt financing of it uh, makes the economy more fragile to any change in interest rates. So economies that have a lot of debt, an abundance of debt, more than typical economies, are much more likely to be reticent to raise interest rates, just because if you have a lot of debt and you raise interest rates, bad things can happen. Yeah, so that's a part of the danger. Um, just popped in my head. Do you think U.S. will ever move to like the hundred-year bonds or something to to solve that problem? <laughs> um, they were talking about some very very long-term bonds at the U.S. Treasury. Uh, I think at least fifty years or something. 
And uh, they got a lot of pushback from the, uh, the bond community, if you will, the investment banks and uh, bond dealers. So at this point, I don't see it, but, uh, you know, things can change. Right. What's, is, what's the tenure right now? Like 50 bits oh, or something? Yeah, it's a little over uh, a half a percent. Yeah, 53, 56 right. bits. So you feel like someone out there would be like, give me one and a half percent for 50 years and I'll take it. Um, well, 50 years is kind of a long time, and, yeah. uh, and, and a long-duration bond like that is going to have some interesting volatility, even if interest rates yields don't move very much at all. <laughs> right. You'll have to survive to uh, duration to see the effect of that. And I always come back to, like, Austria or someone issued 100-year bonds. Like, they weren't even a country for a 100-year period. Like, <laughs> a country. So there's some other outside risks there of having your money tied up. For well, that. you know, in the 1800s, the, uh, the United Kingdom used to issue what they call consuls. And those are bonds that pay interest and they never mature. Really? All right. <laughs> what were the rates on those? Uh, they were actually fairly low. I mean, you only issue these things when inflation is low and you're doing okay, you know. Um. So I don't know if I heard your answer. So which side of MMT are you on? That it's okay in a in a terrible situation, but not all the time? Oh, yeah. You didn't really hear my answer because I dodged those kind of questions. <laughs> I'm still doing a, a lot of research on MMT. Uh, I, I did write a, a research piece a couple of months back on it to try to really get my head into it and explain it. Um, but I'm not on one side or the other. I think when you're far from equilibrium like we are now, it's an appropriate policy. And there'll be times later on where it's not appropriate. And we just have to see how carefully the politicians and the central bank deal with that when the, you know, when the time comes. And But what's different this time than 08? Nothing? We just weren't calling it necessarily MMT in 08? Oh, no, no, no. This is a lot different than 08. Um, mainly because of, well, two things. First, magnitude. In uh, 2008, the, in the fourth quarter of 2008, the Fed did buy a trillion dollars of securities, but it wasn't U.S. Treasury debt. It was to take the bad, toxic securities, if you will, out of the banking system, yeah. and it allowed our banking system to recover much faster. Um, what we had, a second difference with 2008 is while 2008 was a financial crisis, um, that the financial system didn't work for a short period of time, and we then went through a deleveraging period. The pandemic is not a price event. It's a shutdown, a government-mandated shutdown because of a health crisis. So it shut down the, uh, you know, the restaurants and it curtailed flying and all of those, the tourist industry suffered. And so anytime an economy is not responding to price signals, because it can't, because of then you cannot analyze that with economics 101, okay? Because everything in, that we teach in economics at universities uh, involves uh, very important that agents and consumers and businesses respond to prices. And that's not what we're doing right now. We're responding to a health crisis and government orders and so forth. So it's totally different. What, and what would you say, of it's right, a lot of the critique is it's not a liquidity issue, it's a, demand issue, right? And you can't print money to solve a demand issue. That's correct. And that came up back in the 1930s. The phrase pushing on a string was yeah. applied to uh, central bank policy um, because, you know, you, you had a severe demand uh, drop 
in the depression and we've had a severe demand drop from the from the pandemic at least for certain types of goods tourism restaurants air travel things like that and uh, there's nothing the federal reserve is going to be able to do about that um, or the federal government for that matter except to uh, to try to solve the uh, the underlying problem and the underlying problem we're going to call a vaccine when we get a vaccine and we're able to distribute it then consumer behavior can can change again um, so right. that's you know that's not federal reserve policy but you can also i could argue that all day of the but i still printed this three trillion um gave out this three trillion that's not going to solve a lot of those solvency issues for those those groups that well they uh the, the fed yeah. buying the uh the debt of the treasury allowed the spending that the treasury was doing or the u.s government was doing to help them with the pandemic it allowed that to have less of an impact on bond yields than it otherwise would have. So, you know, that probably helped the equities rally. Uh, I'm sure it did because you have lower bond volatility, lower yields. So that's good for equities. Uh, so, you know, it had an impact on the asset price markets. Um, and it allowed the Treasury to get that money out there without impacting the asset prices as much as it might otherwise have. So, I, you know, I would argue it's appropriate policy. What what do you think the bond yields would have done if the uh, Treasury hadn't bought those, or the Fed hadn't bought them? Well, we won't know, but there, there are two ways of looking at this. Um, and one way is to look at the history of the, say, the 10-year with uh, compared to inflation, historical, and you know, recent history of inflation. And since uh, inflation peaked in the United States back in uh, 1980, 81, 82, at around 12, 13%, and there was a big gap. Um, but over the time, uh, as inflation came down in the 90s, the gap between inflation and bond yields narrowed. So bonds weren't offering as much of a premium. And, and more recently, in the last 10 years, bonds have really offered uh, only a fairly small premium to inflation. And then when, when quantitative easing has begun, become very aggressive, sometimes that premium went away. So if you're looking at that theory, uh, you would argue that the Fed maybe has lowered the 10 years, maybe a half a point, uh, 50 basis points lower than it otherwise would have been. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, if the Fed is buying 46% of the Treasury's new issued bonds, then, uh, then the bond market itself, the yield curve, is reflecting a combination, a complex combination of what private investors are doing, asset funds, hedge funds, whatever, and what the Fed is doing. And of course, the Fed isn't maximizing its profits. The Fed is trying to achieve an economic goal. So that means that the yield curve, the price discovery in the yield curve, doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean. Uh, and it probably is not telling you how easy monetary policy really is. So you have to look to other markets that are inflation sensitive to get some idea that, that maybe the yield curve is not giving the same signal it used to give. Mm -hmm. And gold and the dollar are telling you that there's some inflation fear out there. Uh, and so that would tell you that that 50 basis points is an underestimate. But as to what the right number is, I don't have a clue. So let's let's dig into the back to the dollar a little bit and in our world of managed futures and trend following across all sorts of different sectors or not even trend but whatever your strategy is right the dollar most everything is priced in us dollars 
So a downtrend there can cause uptrends absent any other price movement in some of these commodities. What are you seeing in terms of that effect playing out in the grown in the ground commodities and other financial commodities? Yeah, we are seeing some impact on the commodities. The metals are impacted, led by gold and then followed by silver the most. Um, the, uh, on the other extreme, the agricultural commodities are not really much affected by this at this point. They're, they're, you know, they're in the, uh, they're being affected by the uh, pandemic shutdown because restaurants are closed or not, uh, not as open as they used to be, even though they're reopening. Uh, they're being affected by the oil market because corn has an ethanol component. Uh, so the, uh, the, the ag markets are, are kind of not in play, if you will, but the, the metals definitely are. But and, and you go to energy and, and like oil is 75% used in its refined state as a transportation fuel. And so you're looking at on the demand side, you know, air traffic is simply not back, although people are driving. So uh, the demand for gasoline uh, to fill up your car is there, but the, uh, the demand for uh, jet fuel and so forth is not there like it used to be. And then on the uh, supply side, we're seeing a huge drops in supply in the Permian Basin and other shale, shale oil in the US, but we're probably gonna see some increases in production in Saudi Arabia and Russia and parts of OPEC. So, you know, oil has been trading in a, you know, sitting around that low $40 range for WTI. It did get a boost uh, from the, uh, the tragic events in Lebanon, but uh, that's temporary for that. What do you see in terms of the, right? So when oil went to negative 37 or whatnot, and you know, I don't know, at the end of day basis when it went to five bucks or something, um, and now all the way back to 40, as you said, is that a more a result of basically them shutting in the supply of like, hey, we got to re react quickly to this lack of demand, let's drastically reduce supply or increase in demand? Well, that was a very, very special one day case uh, just before the uh, expiration or maturity of the nearby oil contract. And oil is a physically delivered contract. And so if you get, if you are an oil trader that studies that market carefully, you understand the issues of storage and uh, where that oil is allowed to be stored to meet the contract specifications and so forth. Um, if you're a, a, a retail investor or something, you, you know, you have no business being close to that, the expiration of that contract anyway. So yeah, that was a, a very one-off, but markets worked very well. I mean, the, there were uh, the markets traded all the way up and down. Uh, every contract got filled. There was a buyer and a seller. Uh, you know the, you know the the market worked. It just some people didn't like the outcome. That's a different story. Right, but I would say ignoring that that day, right when oil went down, even if it, we say ten dollars, right, it's rallied dr drastically off those lows in April. Yes, on the on the day that the nearby went negative, the the second contract in oil was sitting went as low as ten. So we've gone from if you say we've gone from ten back to forty, and uh, you know that's really a partial reopening of the economies as well as uh, the the drop in production that's happening in the U.S. shale play, and at least in part of that, the, the OPEC plus Russia dropped production for a while. So there, there's some pretty good supply and demand stories there. Plus some dollar weakness, right? And plus um, a little dollar weakness because oil is priced in dollars. The And do you have any um, thoughts or concepts on how 
hedge fund strategies typically perform in a trending dollar versus non-trending dollar or a, a weak or strong dollar? Well, you know, in the uh, not so much in the last 10 years, but the foreign exchange traders used to wear, you know, on their tie, the trend is my friend. Uh, yeah. They no longer wear ties and the trend hasn't <laughs> been as friendly. But the, uh, you know, I think uh, when you get a, a, a fairly large divergence in policy and you get a perception that things are changing in one of the key countries like the Euro, uh, there's a pretty good chance that people will find that trend and do well with it. And is that, do you feel like that's partly globalization and coordination of monetary policy across all the G7 or whatever currency countries? of that's kind of suppressed volatility and suppressed trends in the dollar and the resulting currencies? Yeah, once uh, once we had the Great Recession in 2008 and, you know, Japan, your ECB, the Federal Reserve, Bank of England, they all went to near zero rates. You yeah, wiped, they all got and on the course, conference call together, right? And said, all right, how are we going to fix this? I'm not sure they had a conference call, but they all ended up doing the same thing. <laughs> Uh, they do talk to each other a lot, but I, but I wouldn't necessarily use the word coordinated. Uh, okay. But, uh, but they all ended up in the same place. And uh, so it took monetary policy out of the equation for, for a long time. I mean, uh, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, you know, they're still doing quantitative easing. Rates are still either zero or slightly negative. Uh, so, you know, what, what you have moving the currencies is either changes in risk perception or changes in relative growth. And that's what we're kind of seeing that's changed with, with the Europe in the last couple of, in the last month. So I think I'd speak on behalf of all the traders that they would welcome lack of coordinated, even if we don't use that word, monetary policy would be welcome to all the traders out there. Get, well, get they should, you know, what they, they've got it. They just don't have it in the majors. Uh, I mean, that's one of the interesting parts of the foreign exchange market is there are lots of opportunities for interest rate differentials and growth differentials and risk differentials in the emerging market currencies. Uh, very interesting things going on. And that business is a growing business. So uh, there's, there's plenty of things to do. You just not necessarily in the majors. Uh, and where are we putting the remembi or the uh, Chinese currency in there as a non-major? It's a non-major until they loosen up their restrictions. <laughs> yes. Uh, but do you see any that they'll become the reserve currency of the world? Do you see any threat of that or truth to that? Well, you know, the dollar really has a pretty strong hold on being the primary reserve currency. But there's a, there are different issues with all of its competitors. So the, the biggest competitor to the dollar is portfolio diversification. So uh, yeah. if you run a sovereign debt fund or you're running a central bank around the world and you're feeling that the U.S. is riskier than it used to be and the U.S. maybe isn't coordinating with other countries as much as it used to, uh, then you might say, okay, I'm going to change my currency mix so I'll own a little less dollars, but I'm going to own more of a slice of everything else plus gold. Uh, so portfolio diversification right now is the challenger to the dollar, but not any specific currency. Okay. So I'm, I'm not going to get you to wade into the Chinese politics there. Um, let's go back to gold. So is the gold story all about this dollar sell-off and inflation expectations, or is anything else going on there? Well, the gold rallies had a couple of legs to it. 
And the first leg up was really the change in the Federal Reserve to lower, to, low, to not be raising rates. Okay, they were raising rates, you know, and then they stopped raising rates. Yeah. And then they started lowering rates. And then we got the pandemic and they really lowered rates to zero. So every time the Federal Reserve moved to an easier policy stance, you had another leg up in the gold market. Uh, and now uh, it's not interest rates, but now it's the, back to our modern monetary theory, it's the Federal Reserve financing the fiscal policy and the fiscal policy become incredibly expansionary. And then the cynicism of the gold bugs is, wait a minute, once these guys learn how to spend, they may just keep spending. Yeah. I don't know if that'll happen, but that's the way a gold bug thinks. When it feels like that from 08, like, oh, we threw trillions at it. It worked. Let's do it again. Now, right. If one trillion worked, let's try three trillion. Next well, the Fed we'll threw, the, that, that's true of the Fed, but not the U.S. government. The U.S. Yeah. government threw money at the 2008 problem for exactly one year. They threw about a trillion extra dollars at it. But then they went into stalemate mode. They put the sequestration plans in place. And we had very tight fiscal policy from 2010 to 2017. And you could argue that that tightness of fiscal policy perhaps made the economy recover from the Great Recession a little slower. But the Fed, of course, uh, started the quantitative easing and just kept doing it for a while. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there's some different habits there. And what are your thoughts? I've been reading a lot recently on it's actually very tight right now for small business lending, like almost impossible for small businesses to get a loan. Right. If they have revenue and they have profits, they're saying, well, we're uncertain of the future. And the flip side is they they're lost their demand and they have no revenue or profits. So they're not going to get a loan. Any yes. are you seeing any of those stats? No, that's correct. The issue here is the Federal Reserve can provide all the credit they want to banks, but the banks have to make profits. And in a highly uncertain environment where small businesses are struggling in many, many ways in many industries, those loans are going to be hard to get. And there's, there's really, you know, the Federal Reserve wants banks to make good credit decisions. Yeah. Uh, so, and, they, and banks are regulated by the amount of capital they have and so forth. So the bankers are going to be very, very cautious uh, in a highly uncertain environment like we're in about putting those loans out there. And that's where you know, the fiscal policy, making some loans available to small businesses, the Main Street Lending Program, the Paycheck Protection Program, those were very welcome um, provisions because the banks wouldn't have necessarily done that on their own, even if you gave them the money to do it. But in this case, uh, that, that the, the other thing on small business or any business, if you take on an extra loan, that helps you get to the other side of the problem, but it doesn't make you grow faster when the economy comes back because yeah. you're more indebted. You've got to be more conservative with your cash and with your business plans. So, you know, th this, this is a complex issue, but, you know, fiscal policy stepped in to try to help that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge problem. Right, and, do you, and are bonds and gold, besides the interest rate differential and the fear of inflation, they're also pricing in a little bit of like, maybe this is a depression era, deflationary, environment based on all these small businesses not being able to grow and a you know a kind of a permanent lack of demand moving forward. Yeah, the jury's very much out on what's going to happen to inflation over the next couple of months. Uh, 
we've had some types of markets that have clearly been saturated with supply and their prices have gone down, but we've had other markets where because of uh, disruptions to the supply side, they were hard to get and uh, prices went up. So it's, it's not clear how much of a deflationary situation we're in, but we're definitely in a situation much, with much less aggregate global demand. Yeah. So you're not worried about inflation at all right now. And, and the possibility of a little bit of deflation is out there. It's, it's a, definitely a possibility. And what, do you, what are your thoughts on the, you know, we just keep having this further dichotomy between the, the biggest winner take all tech companies and the rest of the world, the, even the, right, I think the five largest in the S&P are up 35% or something and the other 495 are basically flat or down something. So do you see that as a problem long-term? Not, not in their stock performance, but just if those, if the largest companies just keep generating more and more monopoly, I'm hesitant to use that word, but more power in terms of demand and customer interest, right? If we have the rest of the companies have no interest, where, where does that leave us? Well, we're, you know, the, the pandemic uh, has put us all working from home, or many of us uh, yeah. in the, and uh, so it, it's made technology a premium. So technology is one of those uh, industrial sectors, which is a, which is a winner, if you will, uh, or has been has opportunities to take advantage of with with the pandemic situation. Uh, but competition tends to come out of the woodwork on these things too. So, yeah. but um, even the you inside know, technology, right? It's the largest of the large are the winners versus the whole sector. I think that's yeah, you're that's right. A bigger issue. Yeah, the largest of the large have uh, gotten larger um, because they've been were very well positioned to provide the services that we needed during the during the pandemic. And you know, a lot of the mainline traditional businesses, building cars, building airplanes, things like that, are you know they're on the other side of that coin. Unless you're building electric cars, and your name's Tesla, right? Um, <laughs> And where just while we're on these big tech titans, what what's the logic in the Fed buying the bonds of Apple, for example, who have you know 190 some billion in cash and don't need anyone? Well, I, I think the bonds. Federal Reserve uh, decided to throw the kitchen sink at issues of uh, the problem, and they in particular did not want credit spreads to get too wide. They, they felt that keeping credit spreads on, so they instituted. A variety of buying programs that they had never done before. They'd never bought corporate credit. They've never been involved in municipal bonds. They're not involved to a great deal of money compared to what they do in Treasury. Treasury is measured in trillions. These corporate credit municipal bond programs are 30, 40, 50 billion at most. Okay. Um, however, the announcement effect was huge. All the Fed had to do is say, We, you know, we're thinking about buying some of these things, and poof, the spread moved in. Yeah, but so I they, feel like Apple's spread <laughs> wouldn't have moved down to begin with. So it's a little bit odd to, yeah. to do it in some of those names. No, that's right. Uh, but you know, on the flip side, they've also the Federal Reserve is holding some not so good credits that have already been downgraded. Okay, true. And what what happens to that money? Is that accrue <laughs> for the benefit of the U.S. taxpayer? Well, we don't know. The Federal <laughs> Reserve has never done this before. They've created some special purpose vehicles to buy these bonds. Um, Including and the now they're going to be on credit committees and things like that. And this is, <laughs> excuse me, 
This is territory, this brand new territory for the Fed. Yeah. And I think they're going to probably, you know, they're going to have some challenges. But that includes the uh, the purchases of the treasuries. So that forty six percent of the treasuries that they're buying that's that goes into this slush fund as well. Uh, I wouldn't use that word. Um, <laughs> excuse me. The uh, the Fed has a really big portfolio. They're at seven trillion dollars. They were at four trillion on February twenty sixth. So. It didn't take them long to get to seven trillion. Treasuries make up a huge component of that portfolio. Mortgages are next. And then these other things are pretty small. The Fed actually stopped increasing its assets on June 10th for the week of June 10th. But they have been redeploying assets. So uh, at the early stage of the pandemic, the Fed made a lot of loans, or we call them swap lines to foreign central banks to, because the dollar was strong at that point. Now that the dollar is weaker, uh, foreign central banks don't need that money. They've been sending it back to the Fed. And the Fed's been using it to buy uh, intermediate and longer term bonds. Uh, in the initial part of the pandemic, the Fed was buying a lot of treasury bills and a lot of repo activity to make sure the overnight funding markets worked really well. That's uh, the SOFR futures and things like that. Yeah. They work just fine. There are no issues there. So the Fed is, hasn't bought a T-bill in six or eight weeks. Uh, wow. they're, they're more in the intermediate and longer into the curve. So the, the Fed has... Uh, you know, what it was doing in March and April, it's reassessed that and it's adjusting its strategy as it goes along. So they're, they're making, uh, you know, their portfolio decisions based on what they're seeing, which markets they think need help to function properly. But, and can they just wipe that, some of those trillions off the balance sheet, so to speak, or does it actually have to be sold to someone else and become a, a real world asset? You can't wipe it off. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, you know, well, the Fed actually, I mean, I when bet they, they'll uh, try, they, someone will try, you know, they, they bought something, so they own a bond. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so it's going to be, we're going to see how, how, what they do to unwind this, if they ever decide to unwind it. Uh, it's, it is a little bit habit forming. So it'll be interesting to see what the Federal Reserve's doing in 2024, when presumably the economy's in much better shape. But in theory, if they sell those those holdings back to another party that's not it's neither here nor there right that's not going to really cause an issue one way or the other no i mean after the uh, great recession and when the fed bought that trillion dollars of uh, very different kinds of distressed securities uh, a couple of years later they they auctioned them off and made money on it and where did that money go that back into the treasury ah the fed took the money in and bought mortgages and treasuries with it Okay, so it never is going to go back into the treasury. The Fed did shrink its balance sheet a little bit uh, a couple of years back, but uh, it didn't last too long. Let me go back to, uh, we mentioned gold and silver a little bit. What What's the dynamic on why silver delayed there and then played catch up really quickly. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, gold is the go-to currency when, you, uh, when you're thinking about international troubles, when you're thinking about inflation risk. So gold was the first out of the block 
if you will. But the gold price, gold to silver ratio got, got kind of out of whack. Yeah. And when gold was powering up, people were thinking, wait, wait a minute. Gold's gotten pretty far ahead of itself. So what we're seeing now is really a catch up to bring us the gold silver ratio more back into line. Which is typically what, I don't know off the top of my head, like. Neither do I. A hundred to one or something, 80 to one. No, I, um, I don't know that ratio. But essentially you're saying, hey, it should be rather standard through history of like. Of well, what? I mean, it's changed through history, but because uh, silver used to have more industrial uses. Yeah. I mean, uh, you might have uh, been a photographer at one point and you developed film and you needed silver. Uh, we don't need that anymore. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> Silver has adjusted to a different ratio uh, because it's lost some industrial demand. Uh, but that happened, uh, that happened 15 years ago. So that's, that's already done. And then let's talk uh, Bitcoin for a sec. So it's been rallying as if it were gold, you know, as kind of an inflationary. Well, what are your thoughts? Is that rallying like as a gold proxy or is it rallying as a, a speculative asset? Well, it's, it's rallying, I think, in part because interest rates are zero. Uh, people are looking around and saying, where can I get some yield? Where can I get some money? So it's what we call a search for yield that takes you into riskier things uh, or more volatile things. Yeah. Uh, and Bitcoin uh, is not particularly related to the fundamentals that might affect other markets. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're players in that market that, that do see value in adding that to their portfolio in these times. And what are your th overall thoughts on Bitcoin? Did you ever think you'd be alive to see the day of the virtual currency? Do you feel it's a currency or what? Um, <clears throat> I don't know what I would put category. I, you know, I put it in the category of a futures product. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know it's a futures product because the demand uh, for trading it is out there. You know, uh, you know the exchange is agnostic. If people want to trade something, then then if enough people want to trade it, then we might offer a platform for that. With what we did with with Bitcoin, um, you know. Yeah, but I, I yeah, want you ahead. guys to do uh, box office receipt futures. I feel like I'd be a great trader on that. Selling some of these new movies short, buying other ones, that'd be good. Cantor Fitzgerald tried that uh, like two dozen years ago, and I don't think it got approved. But. No, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a large number of really great ideas for futures products that haven't worked. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we, if you look over the history of the 100-year-plus history of futures exchanges, uh, they're, they're littered with product, projects that thought they were going to work, and they just didn't. And that even when you do the research and you talk to people, they say, yeah, we'll trade that. Yeah, um, yeah. But then they don't. <laughs> yep. Pork, but pork we're getting, I have to say, uh, CME Group, we're getting better at, at uh, designing products. Uh, we, uh, we've had, you know, the micro equity products have been a big success. Yep. Some of filling some of the gaps in the treasury yield curve with the Ultra 10 and more recently the three-year have been great ideas. Um, so I think we're getting better at it. And what, what is that ultra bond one? There's a, what's the ultra? 40, 50, what is that one? Uh, that's essentially a 30. Okay. And what so happened? You've got the, the ultra bond, you've got the bond, which is closer to a average duration of 20 or 17 or something. Then you've got the, the, uh, the treasury note, which is like a 
tenure, but you can deliver a seven or eight year into it. And then you've got the ultra 10, which is a closer window of delivery. So it, it gives people, uh, you know, traders, risk managers, a really a good look at the yield curve and, and they can position exactly where they want to be on it or, or, or run their risk management on the shape of the curve. Uh, and then you mentioned the Fed putting uh, overnight money for currencies. Have you seen the Turkish lira uh, <laughs> the last two days? What's going on there? It's like a 800% <laughs> overnight funding rate or something? Well, you know, anytime uh, a country uh, has uh, a lot of debt, particularly some debt not denominated in their own currency, and they have some political issues going on, and they're not growing. Uh, if they want to control, you know, if they want to stop the weakness of the currency, rates could just go sky high for a little bit. So, so one of those places. Just a way to, to protect their currency without going into the open market, so to speak? Well, it makes the cost of shorting the currency very, very high. Yeah. And so that's the theory. And it, it can work for, for some period of time, but it hurts the economy. So there's a trade-off. And how do they do that? They're basically just not loaning out any, any currency. Yeah, they're, they're well, it's kind of like the Fed setting the Fed funds rate, you know, just pop that rate up there. So, I mean, and when you're dealing with emerging market currencies, uh, the interest rate differentials play a huge role and they're much more volatile differentials than they are with the major currencies, which aren't volatile at all right now. Uh, so you get to, you get some really nice moves in those interest rates and then you'll get a big move in the currency. And um, so it's a, you know, you've got to do your homework for that, those kind of trades. Yeah. No, thanks. Um, and so let's, let's circle back to the fed funds rate that you just mentioned. How long, which I know you don't know the answer, but let's discuss like how long are we going to be at zero? Can we ever not be at zero? Right. Part of me is just in my real world of seeing friends and real estate and lending and whatnot. I feel like there's no way you can ever go back to 14% or something of like these mortgages that used to be in the seventies and eighties. Um, I know we've talked before. I've never say never, but it seems to me that the world's addicted to low rates massively now. It'll be a, a big ask to go back. Well, it's true that the, you know, the major countries are very much addicted to debt, which makes you addicted to low rates. Yeah. Um, but what can change, and we have no idea if it will or not, is the inflation environment. Uh, inflation is very hard to start if you don't have any, and it's very hard to stop once you get a lot of it. Right. See and, Japan for the first one and see Argentina for the second one. Right. You know, and the U.S. Uh, had creeping inflation in the 60s. It started picking up in the 70s. And then when the U.S. tried to stop it, it took a long time. And it took 20% interest rates to stop 10% inflation. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, so really the inflation is going to be the key for whether rates stay very, very low. If we stay in a very subdued inflation environment, rates are going to stay low. Um, but if inflation starts to pick up, then there'll be people that get worried about that. They'll have to protect themselves uh, against the inflation risk, and you will start to see action on rates eventually. And but where my problem with that is always the like I have huge inflation, right? Of Chicago property taxes, Chicago private school bills, and healthcare. Like those are all growing at five to 10% a year. So there's huge inflation there that doesn't kind of make its way into monetary policy or, or theory. How do you square that? 
No, well, that doesn't square very easily. I mean, <clears throat> when we talk about inflation, we're talking about the average of the whole country. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're talking individuals. Not Jeff Malik's and, personal inflation. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you got your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer and you're, you're fine on average. That doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so the averages definitely obscure a lot of interesting things that are going on. But that shows up with different sectors performing better. It shows up with the stock market maybe looking at one sector versus another. It, it shows up in people migrating to one state or leaving another. A lot of those things uh, end up being uh, coming into play, but not interest rates. I, I just had that debate with someone the other day of whether it's I can't, ethical or moral to have, or wise to have inside the United States basically competing, different states competing for citizens by offering essentially tax breaks and no state income tax here, some income tax there. Like it, his argument would seem a more fair society if it was equal across the board in every state. Well, you know, we're, we're definitely a collection of states that uh, have quite a bit of uh, discretion in their taxation policies and are quite different one from the other. Um, and that's their choice under our system. So I don't think that's going to change. <laughs> And what do you do? You have any thoughts or theories on whether, uh, right? If all these people are moving to Austin, moving to Nashville from high tech states like Illinois, uh, eventually it seems like they'll have to increase their taxes somewhere to pay for all that inflow, right? To pay for infrastructure and whatnot. So do they do it via, you know, maybe they don't add a state income tax, but you're going to be paying for it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the states have to raise money somehow or another. And, uh, you know, like your example of Tennessee and Nashville is kind of an interesting one because they've really acquired literally uh, some pretty amazing musical talent from different places around the world, including Detroit and places, yeah. of, you know, like 10 or 15, 20 years ago, uh, because Tennessee doesn't have an income tax. But it does have sales tax and it does have property taxes. And, you know, it just depends on your own circumstances, whether this, whether it makes sense or not. And what uh, some people I know down there say now they have a traffic tax, not a not an actual tax, <laughs> but the traffic is ten times worse than it was a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely say that places like L.A. and Atlanta also have traffic taxes. <laughs> yeah, and Chicago, except if you're like me and live in the city and work in the city, you don't experience it all that much. So we well we touched on that a little bit. Of basically, you're just saying they'll come off zero when there's a threat of inflation. Uh, actually. Have. They, they won't come off zero when there's a threat of inflation. They'll come off zero after the inflation has happened. Which might be too late. And, the, and they've actually, uh, Chairman Powell has been very clear about that, that they're going to let inflation overshoot their targets before they get worried about it. And so uh, what, where, where will you see, what will be some of the signposts there to see when inflation has come back? And you just watch the inflation data. When people start just, talking okay. about it in the newspaper, when your taxi driver starts complaining about it, when your Uber driver complains about it, uh, you know, when your uh, your long lost cousin is complaining about it, then it's back. But in we're, terms we're of at, in terms of real world, it'd be like I can't afford to buy a house. It would be like San Francisco real estate right now, like an average household can't afford to buy a two bedroom home or something like that. Yeah, Cars, it'll. It'll when when there's going to be a we call it a narrative, but when the narrative takes over that the inflation is back is when that'll be when the conversation starts at the Fed, and they will they will watch the data, 
Um, but they, you know, it is their, they, uh, you know, they were unable to get inflation as high as they wanted it. They couldn't get it to two or 3%. So if it ever gets to two or 3%, they're going to let it go to four because, and then they'll see what they want to do. But they, that's what they've told us. And the, the flip side of that is they can never get it back, right? And then you're Japan and you have, what are the issues on that side of the equation? Well, you know, countries that are aging and that are, have an old demographic tend to have less inflation. So Japan is one of the older countries in the world. Average age is about 47. The U.S. will turn 40 in the next couple of years. Um, but Western Europe, the U.S., Japan, and China, by the way, are all pretty older countries. And so, you know, that dampens uh, the growth and demand over time. And uh, so you just don't sense this, uh, you know, that the inflation pressure is going to come back in that kind of situation. Um, but absent that, you'd see depressed stock market prices. What, what would the deflationary period look like for stocks, bonds, other asset prices? If it's only one or two percent deflation, you're not going to see much reaction in stocks. Um, but like in the Great Depression, we prices declined about 10 to 15 percent on average. And that is a whole different game. That's a whole um, new ball but, of wax. Yeah. But we're not in that ball of wax. And that's why the Fed and the U.S. government are, are spending so much money is they don't want to be in that. I mean, 1932 was uh, three years after the recession, almost depression had started. And both presidential candidates ran on a, a platform of balanced budgets. They were going to be fiscally disciplined. But it didn't take, Roosevelt won the election and it was like only a few weeks later that he felt like this is not going to work. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he, he went after spending a lot more uh, money and putting works programs in place because once you're in power, you realize it is, it's it's going to take something special when you're in that kind of depression situation. The pandemic shutdown, uh, you know, clearly called out the need for, for extraordinary fiscal policy. Any other thoughts on the uh, that you have on what what we got going on in the economy here? I'll leave you with the thing that I'm doing the most. I've, I'm getting out of the prediction business and I'm into what we call the now casting business. If you don't know where you are now, how are you going to figure out even where to go? And yeah. so uh, as an economist, what we're doing is we're really, and I mean this in my peer group as well, we are studying a lot of data we never used to look at. Like I check every day now, I have it automated on my computer systems, but I check the number of people that go through security checkpoints at airports. I want to know if we're flying. And I can yeah. get that data for free every day. Which we Open just Table, you know, the restaurant group, they make their, yeah, Open Table makes restaurant seatings available. And I check that. Are we going back to eat or not? Uh, I'm actually looking at the uh, data from New York City on how many people go through Times Square subway station every day. Uh, because that, that'll be my leading indicator, among others, of when the work from home starts to ease off. Uh, I'm looking at transit, you know, how much uh, the commuter rail ridership is. And again, this is all public data that a typical economist wouldn't have looked at, you know, five years ago, two years ago. Yeah, it's more February. like the, the uh, alternative data that hedge funds are yeah. using to get a jump on an on right. economic number. But I'm using all of this data just so I know where we are today. Yeah, um, because that's what changes the narrative uh, that that 
that you know generates market expectations uh, is if we, if we get a change in this higher frequency data that tells us the economy's coming back, we'll you know we'll get another leg in the stock market and things like that. And so where, we're using different data and we're using it to just tell us where are we now? Look out the window. Is it raining or what? So tell us where are we now? Where what do all those numbers look like? We're if a hundred percent is all the way back, what give us a rough percentage based on all those indicators? Uh, restaurants are about forty-five percent back, give or take. Uh, airlines are not there; they're in the more the thirty percent category, depending on the airline. Uh, tourism is definitely even not as far back as that. Uh, so you know, those kind of the hardest hit sectors are are, are not back to fifty percent, and some of them are not back to thirty some odd percent yet. On the other hand, the uh, the numbers on the pandemic cases, the, the the surge that was going on in the Sun Belt states, that's starting to come down in places like Florida and Georgia and so forth. So we are getting some better numbers every day uh, on on some of the pandemic statistics. And then we didn't even talk about employment. So uh, all those restaurants and uh, commuting ties in with the employment picture. Where what are your thoughts on? Uh, the employment picture are those jobs gone forever or they'll be tied to those statistics coming back well part of what drove me to alternative data was the confusion in the employment data okay uh you know we we started looking at the weekly new unemployment claims and then we realized that a lot of states were two or three weeks behind in processing that stuff so mm -hmm. that's not as that's not so good we don't know what's going on we know it's not there's still a million people applying for those claims every week according to the data but you know they're lags and then we looked at the uh, the employment, the monthly employment data, and we discovered in the unemployment data that some people were misclassified, as the Bureau of Labor Statistics told us. And so, and all of that data is lagged, uh, at least a couple of weeks in the case of claims, but maybe more because of the processing slowdowns. And you know, the employment, the jobs report is lagged a month, and it's only a snapshot from the middle of the month. So I think we're all going, in my peer group, we're all looking at any kind of data that's, that's got a higher frequency on it that can tell us more. So the, the jobs data is not as important to me as it used to be, because it, by the time it comes out, I already know the story's changed. Got it. And that would be the critique for your peer group and economists in general, right, of you're dealing with a lag. Um, you know, famously, people say no better than a weatherman in terms of predictive power. But what are, what are your thoughts on those critiques? Well, you know, weathermen have gotten a lot better in the last <laughs> 30 or 40 years. True. Uh, and, uh, you know. Um, with some satellite power behind them. Yeah. Yes, with a lot of satellite power. And I do dabble in weather forecasting when I need to, uh, <laughs> particularly like, say, for uh, spring flooding or not. And uh harvesting the corn and soybean crops. So, or when you're going out on Chesapeake Bay sailing. Exactly. So I, I have a lot more respect for the weather forecasters than some people do. And so when I get compared to a weather forecaster, I take it as a compliment. <laughs> All right, done. Uh, and then one other thing you just brought up there, which I think is interesting, you're talking about the narrative, right? And you talked about that with inflation too. It seems the narrative matters more than the, the reality, right? Yes. Uh, if you're there's a lot of debate about how expectations get formed. And a lot of economists do very detailed quantitative studies based on historical data to try to figure out ex expectations. But many of us uh, believe that what the narrative, the prevailing narrative is way more important. 
and it can get out of line with reality, but then reality catches up and the narrative changes and it bounces back. And so the proponent of this is uh, Bob Schiller, Robert Schiller, a Nobel yeah. Prize winner, and he's written some great, a great book on narrative economics. Um, but yeah, I think understanding how the narrative is gonna change helps you understand how expectations will change, and then that's how the market's gonna follow those expectations. And then it's not just the, right, there's competing narratives too, right? There's the actual narrative of all the investors and traders, but then you have the governments of the world trying to shape that narrative to make you believe what they want you to believe in terms of the data, right? Yes, and when you get competing narratives, or sometimes we call them conflicting narratives, yeah. uh, you can get some very interesting risk profile probability distributions, because if one narrative wins, you go one way. If another narrative wins, you go the other way. And so what that means is that the market today is pricing the average of the two narratives, and you know you're not going to stay there. You're going to go whichever one controls the, the narrative down the road. Uh, and so those are probably the most interesting risk events to watch. Yeah, it's, it feels like in your brain you think they might balance each other out, but it seems if it's 51-49 one way, that narrative takes control and the market moves entirely that direction. If it flips... 49.51 the other way, it flies in the other direction. Well, to some extent, that's, that's right. But what I'm really worried about is when it resolves. Like, say it's 50-50 or 60-40. Yeah. And then you get some information that says, okay, the 60% narrative was right. The 40%, it goes to 100. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's Overnight. what happened with Brexit. I mean, that's the classic, you know, do I stay or do I go? And then, uh, you know, after the, uh, the, the results come out, you know you're going to go. And so the yeah. pound drops 7% on the day. Um, anytime you get election risk uh, or policy risk or OPEC decision risk, you can get people arguing one way or the other. And then you find out the answer and markets move instantly, quickly. So now I was going to wrap up, but now we brought up election risk. So we got to talk about uh, November. Uh, the VIX is- I should not have brought that up. That was a yeah. mistake. <laughs> The VIX is pricing in a volatile period. Um, you know, its its curve is in backwardation and then pops in October there. Um, so what are your thoughts? Is it going to be volatile? Is it going to be one of these binary events? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm in the camp that thinks we're going to have some pretty volatile markets around the election and in a couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah, and what, what do you believe the narrative is right now that uh, – that'll be a Biden win or a Trump win? The narrative isn't focused as much on the president anymore. Okay. It's shifted to the Senate. Okay. If you read the stories every day in the newspapers and different kinds of social media, there's a lot more discussion that the Senate might be in play. Uh, and, and that, you know, we're pretty sure that the, uh, the House of Representatives will remain Democratic, but the, uh, you know, we're totally unsure about the Senate. And I think that's the interesting uh, debate, if you will, conflicting narrative, because if the Democrats have both houses of Congress, they'll have a different kind of control. But if the Republicans have the Senate and the Democrats have the House, then you, you end up with a little more of a gridlock situation. So that is, uh, you know, very interesting uh, <clears throat> things to follow. But that, you know, you typically get election speculation, if you will, or prognostication. Uh, after Labor Day, people really get focused. Uh, so we're, we're in the last month where we can tune this out, and then we're going to have to get serious. 
Okay, I'm ready. Let's get serious. All right, let's finish it up with a few of your favorites uh, we'd like to do. And thanks again for being here today. Uh, favorite investing book, or I'll, I'll let you do economics book as well. Uh, my favorite investing book is Graham and Dodd. Uh, it's from the 30s. I think you can reread that as many times as you want and learn something. Okay. What's the one, what's one good takeaway out of there? Uh, you really have to do your homework. Uh, you know, you have to think about risk very, very carefully uh, before putting on anything and you have to calibrate that. So it's a very risk-based approach to investing. Um, favorite Chicago pizza spot? <laughs> I'm afraid that would be uh, my wife's pizza. Oh, she makes it homemade? Uh, she can do it all, yes. All right. Okay. You're going to have to have me over for one of those. Um, favorite sailing spot, Chesapeake Bay, or have you been others? Oh, I've sailed a lot of places, and the Chesapeake Bay is my favorite. Um, one of the things on the Chesapeake, there are a lot of restaurants when they're open that you can sail to and dock and uh, have a nice meal, so it's destination sailing. The other thing is the Chesapeake Bay has a muddy bottom, sandy muddy bottom, so they when you accidentally go trouble. aground, there's no damage. <laughs> That's if you're on the Long Island, if you're on the North Shore of the Long Island and you go aground, that means you've hit a rock and you've got a big bill coming your way. Yeah, I've, I've hit rocks before. Off Florida, you hit the reef and yeah, it doesn't, leaves a mark. Um, and you're a tennis player too, right? Yes. Favorite uh, tennis pro of all time? Oh, wow. You know, I would I would have to say Arthur Ashe. I go back a little bit, but uh, okay. he he was just really amazing. But I also like Rafi, and yeah. uh, how he plays. I I you know I grew up playing on clay, so I I do like oh, that sort. So of Nadal, yeah, is the man there. He's only worth a couple hundred million these days. So. <laughs> right. Um, and then rounded out favorite Star Wars character. <laughs> Definitely Pizza the Hut. <laughs> Pizza the Hut. All right. I'll take it. Uh, thanks so much, Blue. This has been fun. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see each other in person one of these days in the next uh, couple months or years or whenever we're off lockdown. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.